Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Susie Gelman, and I'm privileged to serve as board chair of Israel Policy Forum. I want to welcome those of you who are joining Israel Policy Forum for the first time today, and welcome back our returning viewers. We are all heartened by the recent news of a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. We thank President Biden, his administration, and their international partners for their leadership in securing this critical agreement. However, we must also remain vigilant. Truces have lapsed before, and even the longest lasting ceasefires in Gaza have still given way to more fighting. While underlying issues that leave millions of Israelis under threat of rocket attack and two million Palestinian civilians trapped in humanitarian and political crises remain unaddressed. In this environment, Israel Policy Forum remains committed to providing timely resources, analysis, and policy recommendations. Our work is made possible by the generous support of our donors. I want to thank our current and hopefully future supporters on today's call. In this critical moment, I, want, I encourage you to make your first gift or renew your support by visiting our website at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash support. Next, I want to invite all of you to join Israel Policy Forum on Wednesday, June 2nd at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 4.30 p.m. Pacific for our community-wide virtual realistic reset program, which will bring together top policymakers and analysts together for a discussion on the most critical issues facing Israel and the Palestinians today and on Israel Policy Forum's priorities. Given everything that has happened in the last month, that event could not be more timely. You can register and find more information online at ipf.li forward slash to June, lowercase June. Now on to today's program. There's a lot for us to cover in the situation in Gaza, and we're fortunate to be joined by our good friend, Elon Goldenberg. Elon is director and senior fellow at the Center for a New American Securities Middle East Security Program and a policy advisor here at Israel Policy Forum. He is also a co-author of a joint Brookings CNAS report on a new American approach to Gaza, which is available on Israel Policy Forum's website. With that, Elon, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Always great to be with you, Suzanne. Thank you. Let's start by your uh, helping us to understand how was the Biden administration most effective in helping to end this latest conflict and what lessons can be learned from the U.S. experience here to improve American policy on Gaza? Sure. Um, so, look, I mean, I think the administration was was dealing with a very challenging situation, um, starting before the conflict began with the fact that, you know, the Trump administration had shut down the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem which really, at least in my time in government, when things started to go bad in Jerusalem and in the West Bank and Gaza, the people with the, the best eyes in the U.S. government on the ground were our people in the consulate who were engaging regularly with the Palestinians. They were the ones who saw it first. So in many ways, um, the administration was operating with this handicap, this blind spot, um, which was part of the reason I think they didn't see it maybe as early as they might have otherwise. Um, they did act to try and stop it. Um, and I think had some effect, especially in curbing, you know, certain steps before the conflict started, um, such as, you know, the parade route. I'm sure people have gone over this and people, this audience is watching it very carefully um, and, you know, putting off the decisions in Sheikh Jarrah, but it was too late and things things exploded at that point, uh, mostly because of a decision by Hamas. Um, but I thought once the crisis actually began, they were, they were quite effective. Um, they kind of did this, you know, publicly embrace the Israelis, show very little distance, privately begin over time as it became more realistic, 
uh, press the Israelis on a ceasefire. Um, I think that was the right approach. I'm not sure I would have even recommended it. I might have actually pushed earlier for a ceasefire, but I actually, and I was a little dissatisfied. I'll admit early on with what they were doing publicly, but I actually think it worked out better. It might have worked out better than it would otherwise. And I think what the administration was doing um, was kind of taking some of the lessons of 2012 and 2014, the last two times we had these ceasefires, um, and we had these conflicts and then these ceasefires. And the first lesson is, we were not the primary mediator in any of this, right? Because we talk to the Israelis, but we don't talk to Hamas. So it was the Egyptians who were really the primary mediator in getting to a ceasefire. Um, and so the U.S. role in that is use our relationship with the Israelis um, to send messages to them. Uh, and at the same time, also kind of clear the field because there tend to be like a lot of the different players who are eager to, to get involved, like the Qataris or the Turks or whoever else, make clear you know, there's one pathway for a negotiation for a ceasefire here. It is Egypt, and it's the one the U.S. is behind, and everybody else needs to stay out of the way. Um, and I think they did that quite effectively. Um, they also chose, I think, purposefully to not, you know, send the Secretary of State swooping in uh, like we did in 2014. I think the lesson that they took from 2014 is the U.S. got too publicly involved, and when we became the story, it actually made it harder to get to that ceasefire. So, you know, they sent um, Hattie Ammer, you know, our friend and, and colleague and co-writer on this Gaza report a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, and a former colleague of mine, also not only at CNAS, but at the State Department, um, into the region um, to work quietly behind the scenes and be our eyes on the ground. Uh, and then there was a lot of phone calls between senior officials, including eight calls between the president and Prime Minister Netanyahu. Um, and... That, at the end of the day, I think was a more effective strategy. It also didn't help that, it didn't hurt that, interestingly enough, and I think this is, I mean, this kind of portends poorly for Israel and something that we can talk more about, but the reality is, for the first time in as long as I can remember, you had the Democratic Party, actually, and members of Congress pressing the administration to get tougher on Israel, um, which, you know, is, is there's a lot of reasons for that that we can go into, and I'm sure many people on this call know about. But in the moment, it actually was very useful for the president to be able to be the good cop in those conversations with the Israeli prime minister, but be able to say to him, like, look, I'm also facing pressure at home. We need to end this. Like, I can't keep protecting you forever. And like Bibi Netanyahu understands coalition politics as well as anybody in the world. And so like, that's language that he will understand and will speak to him. So, you know, given this hand, I thought they did, you know, a pretty good job. Um, and in, in successfully bringing this to a close as quickly as possible, while recognizing at the end of the day, we're not the primary player. That's Egypt's mediator and Israel and Hamas. And if we weren't at the moment where both sides were ready for a ceasefire, you couldn't have gotten there. Elon, you, you, you said that it worked out to have the ceasefire implemented later than you might have originally thought was optimal. Can you just expand on that before I ask the next question? Sure. Well, I guess what I mean is, um, obviously, I wanted to ceasefire as quickly as possible, right? Because people are dying. Um, but I think if the U.S. had come out from the beginning and been more aggressive in calling for a ceasefire, um, there would have been pros to that, right? Pros in terms of laying out our own position, pros in terms of our position internationally, where we blocked a number of, you know, U.N. Security Council like statements, um, where a Biden administration, like pulling back from Israel to a broader agenda and talking about a return to the multilateralism after the age of Trump. Um, you know, it hurts us in all those ways to be out there on our own um, 
you know, taking the heat for like, and, and taking, you know, basically a stronger position in supporting the Israelis. Um, you know, but I think if we had come out early on and called for a ceasefire at a moment where, um, the Israelis just weren't ready to do a ceasefire because mm-hmm. the fighting had started and they were determined to knock Hamas back right. as much as possible. It would have actually weakened our leverage, would have weakened our credibility and made it, made it harder to get the ceasefire later. Holding on it and then putting it out there when it actually looked right, I think gave us that maximum leverage while also buying us points and confidence with the Israelis and demonstrating to them, like, we'll have your back. And frankly, I think at the end of the day, I don't think there was a unanimous view inside the administration on this. I think this was like Joe Biden's instincts himself and his personal views that that drove the, the policy in that direction. So far, the ceasefire seems to be holding, but many tens of thousands of Palestinians in Gaza have been displaced, exacerbating the already extant humanitarian crisis in the Strip. Is there any movement to mobilize outside support to ameliorate the situation? Yes. I mean, this is what, you know, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, is in the region doing right now um, and is kind of priority number one for U.S. policy towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in the immediate and one of the points we made in the big study we put out on Gaza a couple of years ago, um, we talked a lot about both sort of immediate steps and then long-term steps to change the situation. Um, so I'll start with some of the immediates, right? Because that's what we, we need to deal with right now. The immediate is, is the humanitarian. What can you do there? Um, and I'd argue um, the three most important things to do for Gaza, electricity, water and freedom of movement. And there, I think there's a lot more that can be done. Um, so electricity, Gaza still gets about eight to 10 hours a day of electricity. Like this is a very urban environment, like where you really need electricity, excuse me, electricity to function. Um, and a real energy behind, you know, international support behind um, investing in, in, in the electricity grid in Gaza and bringing those hours up, I think is really important. The other thing is water, um, where over 96% of the drinking water in Gaza is not fit for human consumption, you know, um, and that's just a real disaster. I mean, just, you know, just not that far away from places like Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, right? And so a real investment in clean water infrastructure, which there's both long-term solutions for, like new desalination plants, but also Mm short-term solutions for, like just improving the efficiency and cleanliness of the pipes inside Gaza, right? Um, and so, and then health also, just given the, the crisis is occurring with COVID-19. So I, I think there is now a major focus on all those things. You know, I think the administration today actually uh, went with the Secretary of State's meeting with President Abbas announced additional humanitarian assistance for Gaza, additional assistance to UNRWA and the immediate to, to deal with some of these challenges. Um, and I think a lot of work to do there just to start improving the situation. It's long been clear that Israel is either unwilling or unable to definitively defeat Hamas on the battlefield as it would a conventional enemy. So what can be done to prevent another resumption of fighting between Israel and Hamas? Sure. So um, like this, I guess, gets at a lot more of the, the long-term solutions I think that we need for Gaza. Um, and it starts with the reality that, you know, Hamas is here to stay in some form or another, right? It is 
It's a terrorist organization, but it also gets 40% of the vote, right? Like it's also a political party and it's part of Palestinian society. And unless Israel plans to retake the entire strip at tremendous cost, both in terms of lives, Israeli lives and Palestinian lives, and not to mention like, I think the consequences of something like that in international opinion, um, you know, it's going to have to figure out something else to do. So the idea we put out in our report two years ago, um, and one that I still think is the right one, um, is that ultimately you need a political agreement between Israel, Hamas, and Fatah, right? That kind of, that focuses on bringing Gaza and the West Bank back together again, and also includes a major ceasefire for long, sustainable long-term ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Now, this might feel like a pipe dream today, but now is the time to start building towards it, right? Um, the problems we've had it are, right, like we keep trying to have elections or, um, you know, Palestinian or some kind of like unity government between Fatah and Hamas, and it never works. It doesn't work because at the end of the day, one of the things Hamas really wants as part of that is relief of the blockade of Gaza, but Israel controls that. So if Israel's not into political unity, it can turn it off. Um, we've also tried all these different ceasefire negotiations between Israel and Hamas. And that also never works because at the end of the day, like Israel is never going to like sit down and have a detailed understanding with Hamas in a public vehicle. Like no Israeli government will do that, but it would be willing to do an agreement if like it was actually a group of Palestinian factions led by the PLO that also happened to include Hamas. That was part of that agreement you could potentially get to a much more sustainable long-term ceasefire. So the idea we've promoted is a three-way deal. Israel gets a long-term ceasefire in exchange for Hamas getting relief and letting more things into and out of Gaza, which is, you know, in addition, I should have talked about freedom of movement being an essential thing. I think we'll talk about work permits in a little bit as, as an example of something that we can do on that front. Um, and then, so, you know, and then on top of that, um, Hamas gets to play a political role inside the PLO in the long term in exchange for the Palestinian Authority getting to have more control and influence and over time governance over Gaza. Um, and so it's not an easy three-way deal. Um, I think a lot of work to be done on all fronts, but now is a good time to start building at least international support for this type of an idea instead of kind of going back to what we always do, which is like rebuild and just keep things the same and then it'll all explode again in a few years. So following up on work permits, you recently put forth the idea that Israel could issue more work permits for Gaza residents. Could you elaborate on that proposal? Sure. So this is one of those short-term ideas, right? Like the real, beyond helping Gaza with electricity and water and immediate humanitarian needs, like Gaza is about twice the size of Washington, D.C., or maybe it's, you know, like it's comparable in size. Um, but it doesn't it like if Washington DC couldn't be connected to Northern Virginia or Southern Maryland, like it wouldn't function right as an economy. If you can't move people and goods around, right? Like it's this is economics 101 and Gaza doesn't because of the blockade, like people and goods can't move. And so how does Israel try to alleviate that right now? Well, um, one of the things it does is kind of let the Qataris fly in, um, you know, $20 million a month into Ben Gurion airport and, basically have that money go directly into Gaza and directly to Hamas, like as kind of a combination economic stimulus package and pay off to Hamas to keep things stable. Instead of that, why don't you try actually letting Palestinians come into Israel 
to work, you know, give them work permits, which is what we do in the West Bank. Um, you can start with small numbers and build up over time. You can do, it used to happen in the 90s and the early 2000s. You could over time get up to like, let's say 25,000. That would be for every worker, that's six um, people, average size of a family in Gaza. You're like now taking care of 150,000 people. And given the, the disparities in the you know Gaza economy and the US, uh, Israeli economy, I mean, I think that the salaries would be incredibly good for Palestinians and would still be cheap labor for Israel. Um, and the idea here is that creates the same stimulus package, right? But instead of giving all that money to Hamas direct, you're actually explicitly giving it to people who are not Hamas because the Israeli security services are going to vet all these people very, very carefully. Um, and I think that they're capable of doing that. The IDF has long argued for, for doing this idea. And a lot of people who live right around Gaza in the sort of in the kibbutzim and moshavim right around Gaza used to do this with their Gazan neighbors in the 90s and advocate for doing it again. Um, right. And so what a better way to bring money into Gaza. Now, it won't be easy. Um, the politics in Israel are complicated. You really do have to do a careful security vet. Like one incident, one attack um, could be just, you know, could throw the whole thing off, though. I don't think you could. I mean, the worst kind of attack, you're not going to get weaponry out of there. It's going to be the types of things we've seen in the past, you know, like sort of lone wolf type activities. Um, but still, you, you want to try to avoid that at all costs. Um, and also, there's a challenge with Hamas actually letting people do this, right? Um, which they might not, but that becomes politically very difficult for them. If, if, if you have all these people in Gaza who have the option to go get a job and Hamas won't let them, um, that also is something that works against Hamas internally. So I think, God, it just seems to me like a much better option to like pay people for work and have those people be people who have been screened out for not being like security risks, um, you know, as opposed to just giving people cash and having it go explicitly directly to like, you know, the terrorist organization. Right, which is just going to use the money probably to try to rebuild the infrastructure that was destroyed during the last two weeks. Right. I mean, they'll do they'll they'll do a combination, but a bunch of a bunch of the money will end up going to their military capabilities. Right. And then they'll use some of it on you know their population as well. I would just note, by the way, when you talk about uh, Palestinians from Gaza coming into Israel, uh, you know, we at Israel Policy Forum have visited the Arabs crossing at the Gaza border between Israel and, and Gaza, and there's a, as you know very well, you a spanking new terminal that could accommodate up to 50,000 people a day going back and forth. And of course, it's been heavily underutilized over the last few years. Um, so let's hope that that uh, suggestion gets implemented. Um, the Biden administration is now moving to install an ambassador to Israel. The news today is that Tom Nides will be the appointee with Michael Ratney as an interim officer to reopen the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem. What effect might greater American representation in Jerusalem have on U.S. efforts to forestall additional fighting? Sure. So I actually think the way this is working, they just announced the consulate today as well. But um, I think Michael Ratney is actually going to be the acting ambassador to because there is no consulate yet. Um, right? right. And it's going to take, you know, I mean, Nides hasn't even been formally nominated. And from when he is formally nominated to like when he is put in place will be, I don't know, like three, four months, depending on how things go. Um, and so they felt like they needed somebody on the ground immediately, right? Um, 
And they needed somebody on the ground, like Michael Ratney, who I used to work with, the State Department, who is absolutely excellent, right? And who used to be our consul general in Jerusalem, really understands the conflict well and understands the Palestinian side of it well. Um, because the reality is, um, look, we have with our national security advisor and our secretary of state and our president, like deep ties with the Israelis that are like easier to move forward on. We're talking to them regularly. The communication is there. Um, and the ties between Israel and the U.S. are just deeper, right? But on the Palestinian side right now, without a consulate that's supposed to be tagged to work with them directly, um, with only an embassy that, you know, for the last few months has kind of acted, frankly, you know, to some extent hasn't changed their approach all that much from where the Trump administration was, minus like the super provocative tweets from David Friedman. It's supposed to be the embassy right now, since there is no consulate, it's supposed to be the embassy for Israelis and Palestinians. But I think, you know, old habits die hard. And when you spend four years under the Trump administration um, with one approach, you kind of keep doing that. And I think Michael has been brought in to make sure we get eyes on the ground on the Palestinians again um, and are ready and capable. And so that in the future, as I talked about in the beginning, right, this blind spot that came from the consulate until the consulate is all up and running again, we don't have that blind spot. And we have somebody on the ground who really understands, you know, the conflict and can also start making sure that the rest of the team that's there, that's very capable, but most of whom have just worked under a Trump administration where settlements were like a-okay and, you know, provocative steps in Jerusalem. Like we were taking some of those, like, um, you know, so somebody who can help, help that team and lead them and, uh, you know, to get the right reporting we need out of Jerusalem to ensure we don't have any more crises in the next few months. This was the most severe conflagration between Israelis and Palestinians since the 2020 normalization agreements between Israel and, and several Arab states uh, took effect. Have any of these normalizing states, UAE, Bahrain, Sudan, Morocco, taken on a greater role in the Israel-Gaza crisis? Why or why not? And is there an opportunity for deeper engagement here? So look, I think the answer is there is an opportunity for deeper engagement. Um, you know, um, less on Gaza and more on Jerusalem, which I think is very sensitive for these countries um, in terms of public opinion and, and where they are. Like the Abraham Accords, I still believe were a very important and positive development. One you continue to take advantage of. But I think what this conflict reminds us all of is they're not a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Right. I mean, and I think many of us were saying that from the start um, and sadly, like that's been borne out. But at the end of the day, these countries aren't going to like walk away from these agreements because of issues with the Palestinians. The whole reason why they sign these agreements is because they have their own national interests, which at the end of the day are more important. But um, what's interesting is now their voices matter a lot more in Jerusalem. Right. And. Mm -hmm. The Israeli government and the Israeli public are fascinated with this engagement and the opportunities and, that come with it. Um, and they don't want to lose that. And that means they don't want the, the cold piece, right? They want the warm piece. Uh, and that means progress here. And so that gives these countries, I think, especially UAE more than any other one who is really the leader on this front, um, the opportunity to weigh in and kind of encourage Israel to move in a more, you know, to be more restrained on certain things like Sheikh Jarrah, for example. Right. Um, so I think there's an opportunity there. Um, but at the end of the day, we shouldn't expect too much only because 
Like we have to remember, like they signed these deals because the Palestinian issue doesn't matter as much to them anymore. So it's not going to be their first priority. This latest conflict occurred against the backdrop of, some might say as a result of, the continuing division of the West Bank and Gaza and the rivalry between Fatah and Hamas. Your report on Gaza calls for the political reintegration of the Palestinian territories. Is there an opening to do this, or does this conflict leave that goal even more elusive? I actually think there is an opening, Um, not immediately, um, because I think right now everybody's the temperature is up everywhere and like, you need to let it cool a bit. Um, but you know, I, I do think that, and you need to, I think Hamas right now is feeling like, Hey, we, we really like took the mantle of leadership inside the Palestinian sort of politics. And I don't think that's necessarily true. And I think pretty quickly they're going to find themselves back exactly where they were looking for ways out and kind of stuck. But until they do, like, you don't want to negotiate with them from a from a position of strength, which is where they are, they kind of see themselves in right now. Um, but what I think you can do is start rethinking U.S. policy and start rethinking the international approach to actually try to come to some kind of common international position on the importance of, of unity, on the importance of, you know, reengaging. And our position, look, when, when Hamas first took over Gaza in 2007, the U.S. position was we're just going to crush Hamas and get them out of there and isolate them with sanctions. And that position has evolved over time to kind of be like, well, look, if the Israeli, if the Palestinians want to actually go for unity, like we won't stand in the way, which is what the Obama administration did in the later years. And then also what the Trump administration did when some of the unity discussions were happening. And also the approach of the Biden administration to these elections that were canceled, right? That they, you know, they kind of, they didn't really come out against the elections, but they also didn't really come out for the elections, right? And I think if they'd come out more forcefully for, they might never have been canceled in the first place. Um, But I do think we need to actually be pro-elections and pro-democracy and pro-unity and encourage Palestinians to figure out how to do that. Um, Doesn't mean we need to talk directly to Hamas. It just means we need to recognize until Hamas makes some very significant changes in its approach. Um, but it does mean we need to recognize that, you know, continuing the current sort of fiction that somehow we're just going to get rid of this 40% of the Palestinian political system is just not realistic. So I'm going to turn to audience questions, Elon. We have quite a few in the queue and we're going to try to get to as many as possible in the time we have left. Leonard Schneiderman asked, where is the PLO and Fatah in the current conflict? So this is a good question. So, you know, <clears throat> Secretary Blinken just met with President Abbas today. Um, I do think one of the reasons for the conflict was the decision by President Abbas. He came closer to holding elections than he has any time in 15 years. And I think if those elections were still on, we would not have had the conflict that we had because it was when the elections were taken off the table that Hamas looked for another vehicle to sort of they were frustrated politically and they felt like they needed to do something to assert themselves. So I think that's part of what's going on now, you know, the PLO is still like stuck with relatively weak leadership. There's a fair dose of corruption and poor governance um, in the West bank. Um, And there's not a lot of interest, you know, in Fatah in sort of rebuilding Gaza and taking the front lead for that, because like to some extent their view is we need to strangle Hamas. Um, 
And we kind of need to walk the PLO off of that or encourage them to go in a different direction, um, which they've started to do, right, with this idea of a unity government of some sort um, or or uh, elections. But um, for the moment, sadly, I mean, I think just Palestinian politics are stuck and dysfunctional and will remain that, that way until you have some kind of a unity breakthrough of some sort, um, sadly. Do you think the United States can play a positive role in that or you think it's really up to the PA and to Fatah and Hamas to figure it out. I think we can play a positive role by like at least not being explicitly against unity and even like supporting it and working with, you know, the Egyptians and the rest of the international community to support it and push it like supporting getting the Israelis to support, for example, Palestinian elections um, or at least not interfere in Palestinian elections. These Israelis don't need to support it, but they need to allow, for example, for elections in places like East Jerusalem and things like that. Sure. Um, Chaya Gill wants to know, how could an American consulate in East Jerusalem have helped President Biden and his administration to influence matters in Gaza or stopping Hamas, which was expected ahead of time to react to its rivalry, rivalry with the PLO over the cancellation of the Palestinian election? I, so, I guess we need we do, we do need to correct a misperception, right, Alon? There was never an American consulate, a consulate general in East Jerusalem. It was in West Jerusalem on Agron Street. We've all walked by it a million times if we haven't been inside. But still the question is, how would an American consulate general in Jerusalem have, have helped to Biden administration influence the recent situation? So look, the, the explosion ultimately was, you know, rockets from Hamas, right, on Israel. But that's not where it started. It started with... Um, you know, Sheikh Jarrah and the protests in Sheikh Jarrah. It started with actions by, you know, Israeli police during uh, Ramadan to shut down Damascus Gate, which is an area where Palestinians traditionally gather. Um, you know, and for an inexplicable reason, the Israeli police decided to shut it down this year that led to protests. Those protests then included some Palestinians taking TikTok videos of, you know, is of, you know, them going after um, and in some cases assaulting you know, Orthodox Jews, which then led to outrage from right-wing Israelis who marched in some pretty ugly marches, like chanting death to Arabs through the middle of the old city, um, right? You had this whole buildup in tensions. And then this spilled over into violence between protesters and, um, uh, you know, um, the Israeli police on the Temple Mount, Haram al-Sharif. And so we got involved near the very end and told the Israeli government to cool it down um, of that escalatory process to stop them, this march that was supposed to take place to, um, you know, put off the decision on Sheikh Jarrah. And I think we, we played a significant role in making that happen. It wasn't just us, but if those phone calls had been happening two weeks earlier, we might've avoided the whole crisis. Hamas took advantage of that crisis to then launch, start launching rockets. But if we had an embassy, if we had a consulate on the ground who, had foreign service officers on a day-to-day basis sending emails back saying like, hey, like something just happened in Sheikh Jarrah that seems to be a problem. Hey, something just happened Mm -hmm. on the Temple Mount that's worrisome. We could have had this sort of early warning system that would have allowed for earlier American intervention that might have stopped all this. Um, And that's been a role that the consulate has traditionally played um, and unfortunately like wasn't able to play in this context because it wasn't there. So your point is it's important for us to have eyes and ears on the ground in order for 
the official U.S. response to, or even, you know, behind the scenes to be effective. Exactly. Um, so uh, I have a couple of related questions. I'm going to ask both of them. Fred Weiser, how can it be controlled that the economic aid to Gaza won't go to Hamas? And then Alan Minton is asking, can humanitarian relief be supplied to Gaza without Hamas siphoning off a significant share for military purposes? So the answer is like, there's no perfect solution here, but you can do a pretty good job. You have a lot of humanitarian organizations operating in Gaza. You also have municipalities who are separate from Hamas, sort of municipal governments working in Gaza. You have to try to work through them as much as possible. There is this idea of trying to work through the Palestinian Authority when it can, but even though it doesn't really control Gaza, it can help, you know, in terms of its relationships. Um, so you can do all of that um, to try to prevent as much as possible the money being siphoned off um, by Hamas. Some of it will be siphoned off, um, and Hamas will use some of it. Um, the only way to get to zero would be to just cut off the Gaza Strip altogether. And given that there's 2.2 million civilians living in Gaza, like that's not the solution, unfortunately. I mean, it's just a that would be just a tragic, tragic situation. Um, and this is where, again, this idea of like work permits as opposed to straight cash comes in, right? Like, will workers who go work in Israel and come back to Gaza kind of be taxed by Hamas or intimidated into giving him some of their money? Probably, yes. Will that be less than if you are just delivering $20 million direct to Hamas in cash every month? Like, yes, it'll be less. So there'll be less weapons. It will be better to do it this way. So like, that's, that's I think, the best that you can do. John Allen asks, uh, he says, there's a sense among some here in Canada that this conflict may be a game changer in terms of negative perceptions of Israel. Palestinian rights are now being seen in the same way as Black Lives Matter rights. Would you agree that the perception of Israel is changing? Um, I would say it is to some extent for sure. Um, you know, I do think, and actually the Biden administration has also started talking about rights. And actually, President Biden talked about rights as a candidate, Biden as well. It's just it's getting more attention now. But for a long time, he's been saying freedom, security, prosperity, and equal measures for Israelis and Palestinians. Um, you know, um, and look, I think there's a lot of reasons for why there's been a shift, especially amongst, um, you know, more amongst Democrats um, on sort of the perception of Israel. A lot of it is like the decisions by Bibi Netanyahu you know, to very publicly confront uh, Barack Obama on the Iran deal going back to 2015, and then the just total embrace of President Trump and kind of the partisan nature that he's a strategy that he's executed towards U.S.-Israel relations. Um, I think part of it is sort of just social justice movements, um, you know, in this country and around the world that, that increasingly see the Palestinian issue through that lens, you know, of Black Lives Matter and sort of just um, you know, equal rights, and especially amongst young people. And so um, now, on the other hand, I don't think, look, there's still a lot of Democrats in the Democratic Party, especially, you know, members of Congress, um, and the president, for that matter, who, who have a different kind of more traditional view of the US-Israel relationship. Um, you know, I, I never say, I never call like one group pro-Israel, because I like think that that's, you can be pro-Israel, 
Like if what you're doing is best for Israel, in your opinion, you're trying to help, you know, do what you think is best for Israel, um, you know, and support it in that way. Um, that means in my mind, that's a two-state solution and supporting all these, the types of things IPF promotes. Um, but, um, you know, so I don't think it's changing as quickly as people think it is or that it's fundamentally changed for good. I also think, for example, if you had a different Israeli prime minister, like some of the backlash would go away pretty quickly. Um, you know, but like, I definitely also think there's an evolving position, you know, and, and you saw it during this conflict. So, um, we have a question from Laura Kelly who reports for the Hill. She's curious for your reaction to the politics playing out on Capitol Hill, the growing pressure from progressive lawmakers calling for conditioning U S military assistance to Israel as leverage to pressure Israel over its policies towards the Palestinians. How do you view the evolution of this campaign? Is it gaining strength? Is it a correct approach? So, um, so look, at the end of the day, um, it's still a, a very small minority who actually supports, you know, um, using, I would say, conditionality or putting even restrictions on U.S. assistance to Israel. Um, but that voice is growing. Um, you know, folks like you have, you have folks like Bernie Sanders and, um, you know, uh, AOC and Rashida Tlaib, who kind of represent the, the far left of the party and are very out there on this. And you have kind of like folks who are much more in the traditional space, you know, the Chuck Schumer's and Bob Menendez's of the world. But what's kind of been interesting is the movement in the center of the party, not to still like absolutely stand up for Israel and its right to defend itself, but also to increasingly bring to light concerns about Palestinian civilians and Palestinian rights. Um, and, and even voices like Bob Menendez, who I think took that approach during this conflict, or Chuck Schumer, who kind of avoided the kind of tried to carefully like not, not you know, um, be too far out there on these things, whereas opposed to in the past, you might have been more out there, um, you know, together represent the movement of the party overall. Um, like personally, um, I'm kind of skeptical on security, like, I don't think security assistance is the leverage people think it is. We have a long history of like trying to use security assistance as leverage with other countries and it doesn't really work very well. You're not going to get a country to give up on some of its most core basic political or security interests for a few billion dollars. Um, and at the end of the day, Israel is, you know, this isn't the Israel of 30 years ago. Israel economically is, is quite a powerhouse. I mean, it's per capita GDP is as high as like Japan and the UK and all these countries. So even if the US were to tomorrow condition all our security assistance, I think it would be, you know, like quite a crisis in the US-Israel relationship. I don't think it would change fundamental Israeli decisions about their own security at the end of the day. I don't right. think we have as much leverage as people think they do. So... Which is, frankly, the position that Israel Policy Forum has taken all along, that conditioning aid, among other things, is not a, an effective way to try to influence Israeli political behavior. And I would just note, there's an article in today's New York Times talking about how uh, from the 80s, I think, uh, the military budget uh, was, uh, uh, Israel's military budget was supplied something like 10% by U.S. assistance, and now it's down to a nominal percentage, Elon, like 1%, I think. So, yeah. mm -hmm. and and then there are also some calls, Asher Susser, among other journalists in Israel, basically saying, who needs this headache? Just, you know, move away from it. It's, it's basically money that's going to American companies to manufacture the 
weaponry anyway. So, well, I guess we just have to keep an eye on, out for that. Um, we have a question from Bob Elman. Why do you believe that, who's a board member, why do you believe that reconciliation between Fatah and Hamas is eventually possible? If not, do we need to learn from the solution to the conflict in Yugoslavia among different groups and eventually have two different Palestinian governments slash states in Gaza and the West Bank? Yeah, I mean, so I think that what makes me at least somewhat hopeful about eventual reconciliation between Fatah and Hamas is the fact that like it's supported by 90% of the Palestinian public um, who overtly oppose, you know, the, the sort of this three state solution idea, you know, you have two political parties running these two territories, um, but it's very much one people. Right. And so splitting them up into different States, it just is a non-starter politically for Palestinians. You know, when we, when we started doing the work on this Gaza report a couple of years ago, we looked at this option and very quickly realized, you know, yeah, that would make life easier if it was at all possible. It's just not possible given Palestinian politics. So, um, you know, I mean, I'm not sure you can get a real, uh, on reconciliation, I would also say that like President Abbas takes a very hard line about any reconciliation with Hamas. Um, But I think a lot of the people around him and a lot of the potential future generation leaders have a more open open vision on this. Um, and it might be that, you know, a different Palestinian leader down the road would be more flexible and open to changing his their approach, um, which could also make a big difference. I mean, I, I'll say that as, you know, and I say all along, like, you know, the Palestinian leadership and Israeli leadership, right now we have two sides, neither of whom are very functional, neither of whom are very interested in an agreement with the other, are willing to take any kind of risks for that. Um, and so all you're doing is nibbling at the edges until you have, you know, changes in both on both sides. Um, and maybe then you have some opportunities. And we haven't even talked yet about what's going on politically in Israel. As we yeah. know, yeah, Ir Lapid has until June 2nd to form a coalition government. Right now, that's looking not too likely, but mm-hmm. anything is possible. And if that doesn't happen, I guess it gets thrown into the Knesset to see if they can, if the Knesset can choose someone else who then I believe has 21 days to form a government. And if that doesn't happen, then we're talking about a fifth round of elections. So maybe just take a second, Elon, to talk about how you see this playing politically in Israel. You know, I think there was a perception that Netanyahu was the winner here, but now there, there are some indications that his mantle of Mr. Security has been damaged in this latest round because, uh, you know, rockets were raining down on Israelis and 12 people were killed. So, yeah, I mean, I think Netanyahu was the winner in that Bennett felt, right, you had this sort of change coalition coming together. It was based around the idea, I mean, everybody from like, right, the Muslim Brotherhood Party or the Islamists to to Naftali Bennett, right? I mean, trying to come together under the idea of of getting rid of Bibi. and with the violence, especially the Arab Jewish violence, like inside of Israel, I think Bennett felt a lot of pressure to not be able to stay and stick with that idea of coalition and walked away um, while the fighting was going on. But now that the fighting is over, he seems to be back in negotiations with Lapid. It's unclear if he can actually bring his party along. It's unclear if he can actually make this happen or not. Um, you know, it's, it's much less likely now than it would have been before the conflict. 
But at the same time, you're right, Susie. I mean, and this is the reality of every one of these Gaza conflicts, right? Because at the end of the day, there's no winning, right? Like all you do is like fight it out for a few days and rockets rain down on Israelis and, and you know, missiles are raining down on Palestinians in Gaza. Um, and then at the end of it, it's highly unsatisfactory because the only thing that would bring satisfaction would be for Israel to what? Retake the entire Gaza Strip. And that wouldn't bring satisfaction either. That would just mire Israel in a a disaster that then would also be deeply unpopular, but there's no way to like win in these conflicts. And so when you don't win at the end of the day, the public looks up and is like, well, why did we do that? You know? Um, And so that's kind of where we are. Randy Rosenfeld asks, what pressure is being put on Hamas to change their strategies that are deadly to Israelis and Palestinians? What pressure should be put on them by the U S? Um, so I think the pressure that's been applied is, you know, essentially, you know, the blockade of the Gaza Strip by Israel and Egypt with implicit support from much of the rest of the world. Um, you know, not letting in assistance, not letting in money, not letting goods in, like inspecting everything very carefully um, and like sort of making them making the place almost ungovernable because just there's no money. Right. And so, but that doesn't seem to have by itself worked, right? But it is the tool of pressure. You know, I'm not sure, there's not much more for the U.S. to do to apply pressure on Hamas, right? Like, you know, we've sanctioned them. We don't engage with them. We don't really have tools to apply pressure on Hamas. Um, And so we can keep doing that and Israel can keep doing that. And I think you'll just go kind of back to the status quo, and everything will probably be like fine for a few years. Then we'll have another blow up. Um, or I should say everything will be fine for a few years for Israelis while like Gazans continue to live in like pretty miserable conditions. And then we'll have another blow up and then we'll just go back and keep doing the same thing. And so this is why I advocate not just for the immediate humanitarian changes, but also and economic changes, but also, you know, for a long term political deal, because I just don't see another way out of this. So you may have already answered this, but I'm going to ask it anyway, in case you have any further thoughts. Jeff Zim asks, uh, he says, you said earlier you would have wanted a ceasefire earlier because you said people were dying. Isn't there also a different reason, a long-term reason to prevent future clashes where more people would die? Why are we just focusing on the immediate and not the long-term? Well, I think we are focused on both, right? I mean, I think this is where we call for a political arrangement, right? I mean, I guess the only thing I would say is I mean, you can make the argument that like this is the Israeli the Israeli security argument was we need a few days to take out as much of Hamas's weaponry as possible to make sure that when this is all done, like it'll take them longer to rearm and we can, you know, and and you know, and I think that is why the fighting went on for a few days while the while Israel sort of went through its a lot of its military targets. Um, but even the IDF was acknowledging near the end there that like they were pretty much out of you know, viable, meaningful military targets. So essentially they were able, the IDF was able to accomplish what it pretty much wanted to in the course of the 11 days. I think that's, that's it. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Josh Kellner asks, how do you go about accomplishing that three-way agreement when Hamas's charter is the destruction of Israel? How do you get to a point of Israel being able to trust them as a real partner in peace. Yeah. Um, 
Israel doesn't need to trust them as a real partner in peace. Um, just there needs to be a ceasefire that's kind of more spelled out in both that's in both sides' interests. Um, uh, it's true that you know Hamas is charter has called for the destruction of Israel. Um, it's also true that over the years they've kind of moved a little bit off of that position and have talked more in some cases about 1967 instead of 1948. And also that if you go back and look at the PLO and its history for a long time, it was in the position of advocating for the same thing before over time, eventually it shifted to recognizing Israel and, and, you know, making the case for a Palestinian state, like in the, within the 1967 lines instead of the 48 lines. Um, And so, um, and so, yeah, I'm not saying that um, we should just give Hamas whatever it wants without, um, you know, first, you know, getting something for it. But, but, you know, we talk about engaging with Hamas and we talk about three conditions, right? Like nonviolence, um, right? These are the three quartet conditions, nonviolence, recognition of past agreements like the Oslo Accords and um, recognition of Israel. Um, And I would argue that like trying to get all three of those right off the top before you even engage in anything is just unrealistic. So let's start with like, let's get nonviolence. Let's get that commitment to nonviolence. That's a huge step, okay? Um, and then if you get that, then you can move on from there. Um, you know, and that's, and the commitment to nonviolence will be part of a long-term detailed sustainable ceasefire as opposed to what they do these days, which is like put five points on a piece of paper with no real specificity and five points are never gonna, both sides are never gonna implement and then they go their separate ways. Like we can do better. We can do a better peace agreement or at least a better ceasefire. Uh, Philip Stern wants to know, does your three-way plan include Hamas disarming and recognizing Israel's right to exist? I think it includes Hamas over time disarming. Yes. Um, That's part of the deal. Like you're not going to be able to get it to disarm right away at first, but part of what it has to give to the PA is over time, letting the PA have more control over Gaza and disarming, you know, parts of Hamas in exchange for greater political participation and economic relief. That's that's kind of the the idea around it, um, you know, and um, and yeah, like I said, again, like start with the ceasefire before you get to the other points on recognition of Israel. Yes, I want a Hamas that recognizes Israel that that and I want a Hamas that, um, you know, it'd be great if it recognized the Oslo Accords. But again, I mean, there's large parts of the Israeli coalition in the Knesset who don't support the Oslo Accords. So I don't know why we need to make that a condition for engagement. What we really need is. For them to stop shooting stuff like that's like most important by far and so let's focus on that so we have a couple of questions from martin amdur i'm going to ask both of them uh first should the u.s begin contact with hamas and second isn't there a real concern that hamas would win if all of the palestinians both in gaza and the west bank were to vote First question again, Susie, was should the U.S. have direct contact with Should Hamas? the U.S. begin contact with Hamas? Um, look, I don't think we, I don't really think we need to be directly engaging with Hamas right now until they meet some of those conditions we talked about beyond even just nonviolence, you know, um, because there's other parties who can do that. And we can leave that out there. If you want engagement with, if you want American engagement, you're going to have to move on all three quartet conditions and especially the first two, right? So like there's a difference between like recognizing they're there and trying to deal with them realistically, you know, versus having to actually be directly engaging with them. Um, 
You know, now, is there a danger Hamas wins? Um, yes, um, in, in political elections. Um, you know, now, I think there would be a process here. The first elections that were scheduled that were just postponed, partially because of a lack of American support, Israeli opposition, and hesitation from the Palestinian Authority, got all three going on at the same time, um, would have just been for the legislature. Right, which would not, which does not actually determine in the Palestinian Palestinian system the cabinet does not determine the president does not determine the prime minister. So it was kind of like the perfect place to do the first vote because it wouldn't really have that much influence and impact. Um, and look, the polling had Fatah still ahead ultimately, um, despite the concerns about Hamas. I don't think this this um, you know in two thousand and five, the last time they had elections, or two thousand six. Um, you had like 20 different parties running for like, like all, like all these, every like race was like an individual race. And you had all these different like Fatah candidates going against one Hamas candidate in all these different, basically house seats, if you were to like, you know, um, and Fatah was so disorganized and that's why it lost so badly, even though like Hamas didn't get anywhere near a majority of the vote. Um, but this time the vote was supposed to be different. It's like a national list, right? More like the, the Israeli system. Right. Like one national list based on percentages. Um, you know, you did have multiple Fatah parties, like three of them who had had signed up. But together, none of those parties would have necessarily gone into coalition with Hamas. And between the three of them would have still likely had more than 50 percent of the vote. Um, you know, so I think this myth that Hamas is so overwhelmingly popular that it wins any election. That's not really true. Um and in many ways, like you kind of need them in power to make them unpopular and make you realize like that you need a switch. So um, I, it's uncomfortable. It's risky in some ways, but um, we need to like, again, they're 40% of the population. Like, what are you going to do about that other than like continuing to perpetuate the current situation? So we have time for maybe one more question. Uh, this one comes from our very own Evan Gottesman. <laughs> We've talked a lot about Hamas. What about Iran and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which has been at times closer to Iran than Hamas? If Hamas were to meet the conditions you've mentioned, what risk exists that another even more extreme party takes their place? So, look, yes, you have Palestinian Islamic Jihad and you have some of these other extremist splinter groups. Um, you know, they are, you know, the P Pidge in particular has a closer relationship with Iran. Um, Hamas does get weapons and money from Iran, but like pretty much is a pol Palestinian political organization. Like it's not that responsive to the Iranians. It's really, it's calculations are driven mostly by what's going on between, you know, in the Palestinian territories and with Israel. Um, you know, um, and at the end of the day, I don't think these other parties have anywhere near the popularity or role that Hamas has in Palestinian politics. So, would they disappear? No, but I don't think they could ever have the level of influence that Hamas has because Hamas isn't just an extremist group. It really is part of the Palestinian national movement. And it really is like, you know, kind of the armed resistance piece of the Palestinian national movement that has been for a long time. So, um, <clears throat> you know, those it just has so much more influence than these other parties that if I think you had reform and positive change there, like it would, you know, not eliminate these other parties, but they wouldn't be able to exact the same kind of influence. 
Um, just seeing if we have time for one more question, but I think we're we're running out of time. So I'm going to ask you for just final thoughts, Elon, before we close. What at this moment in time, what gives you the most cause for concern, and what gives you the most cause for optimism? Huh, that's a great question. That's a hard one. Um, look, um, what gives me the most cause for concern? is like the dysfunctional political systems on both sides. And the fact that in some cases, some of the long-term trends don't seem so great. Like, and it really makes me call into question whether or not two states is possible. Um, though I still continue to believe that is because I just don't really see any viable alternatives. Um, and, you know, and, and I'd argue, and like Kamara Kaufman-Wittis had a great piece on this last week. I think what we saw was a preview of the one state solution right? Like last week with violence on multiple different fronts in different kinds of ways. Um, you know, what gives me the most optimism might be, you know, being on the verge of possible political change in Israel and also maybe not there yet with the Palestinians, but, you know, talking to younger Palestinians and like, you know, and a lot of the politicians who are upcoming in the next generation, who I think have a much more effective and pragmatic approach to this. And so, you know, I think, you know, those people exist out there on both sides. Um, I think there's an increasingly sophisticated, you know, view of the conflict, you know, internationally in the United States, the American Jewish community and others. And I think all those things like give me some hope that maybe we can get somewhere. Well, as always, Ilan, it's, it's great to spend time with you. Thank you so much for your time and for joining us today and, and for enlightening us. Um, I want to thank our supporters who are with us on today's call. Again, your generosity makes programs like this one possible. And if you have not yet done so, please consider making a contribution today at israelpolicyforum.org forward slash support. Thank you all once more for joining us today. I want to remind everyone to please register online at ipf.li forward slash to June for our upcoming Realistic Reset program. As always, I encourage you to Subscribe to our podcast, Israel Policy Pod. Sign up to receive the weekly Coplo column in your email inbox and visit our website to access recordings of our previous briefings. Please stay tuned for an announcement regarding our next video briefing. Until then, thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you again soon. And thanks again, Elon. Thank you. It was great being here with you, Susie. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.